Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Roy Dennis Wildlife Foundation, based in the Highlands of Scotland. Our aim is to go beyond all the talk about conservation and look at the hands-on kind, following Roy and his team in the field as they work towards the restoration of species in the UK and abroad. So we'll just quickly open up the bag and check that the chick's doing okay. These chicks come from a tree that we reckon is something like 50 metres tall. In the last podcast, we went with Roy's team, Tim McCrill, Fraser Cormack and Ian Perks, as they gathered 11 young ospreys from their nests to be sent to the south coast of England. And there it is, looking good. And the wings are a good length. We'll measure them just to double check, but it looks the perfect size to take to Pool Harbour. OK, now we'll take it back to the house. This time, we'll find out what happened next. I've been recording at the home that Roy and I share in the Highlands and which most summers we also share for a few days with ospreys before they're taken to new homes. So once we get them back, there's a very busy time of making certain that they're fed during the day. This is a fresh rainbow trout and the first job is to de-head it and gut it. Of course the female bird does this. It's a bit difficult for the chicks at that age to eat the head. And then I cut it into thin slices, maybe half an inch thick, turn it over and cut it into four pieces about the end of, size of the end of my thumb. Perfect for them to pick up and eat. And the important thing is to leave the bones in. Sometimes it's necessary just to crush the backbone. But the bone is really important for the ospreys to grow their own bones using the calcium. Interestingly, when we collect a new bird, so this bird has come from a nest, and we put him in with one of the others, which is already feeding, that nearly teaches the other bird what, what the score is, and then it starts to feed. They watch each other very carefully. And I guess it's volume as well, keeping as much fish going into the birds as you can. Absolutely. Never think that you're overfeeding them. Just keep feeding them. And that means giving them good fresh fish maybe three, even four times a day, just like their parents. And are they fussy eaters? Do they just like trout? No, they're really able to take any of these small fish. You know. Here we mainly feed them on trout because it's easiest to get. But in the wild, in the nests that we've collected the birds, they'll either be eating trout or flounders caught in the sea. The main thing is to do this quickly. They're coming to the food straight away. They're also quite aggressive. Um, they're very fit. They're looking good. I, I'd love to think that many of those will survive that first migration to Africa and come back in a few years' time and breed in Dorset. Yep. Superb, mate. Got it, yeah. Not every climb to a nest meant an osprey chick for the project. Brilliant. It's been very difficult to get them this year because there's been a tremendous variety in age and we made a decision that we would collect nothing that was under 320 millimetre wing and we came across several broods um, where the chicks were just too small and we left them in the nest. 
275 and, th and 300, so they're just, yeah. just a bit too small. We won't take those. We'll put both those birds back. They're in good order, though, aren't they? Yeah, really good. Obviously, these yeah. are getting a lot of fish, aren't they? Yeah. Great. Let's get them back up to Fraser. Fraser, that's us ready to pull them up. Just about. That was due this year to the weather in Spain and North Africa, which delayed many birds. So, amazingly, there have been birds that are just on the point of flying at seven and a half weeks, and in another nest, a chick of just two and a half weeks. So that's a full month, five weeks behind. So this is obviously a repeating pattern. While you've got these ospreys, it's constant, constant fish cutting. Just like the parents. The male has to go and fish every day, despite the weather. And we have to cut up fish every day we have these birds in captivity so that they remain in the very best condition. So one of the things that we do seek when we're doing this project and when we're ringing birds is we see how many young ospreys actually in bad summers when you've got a lot of rain, poor, poor conditions, how many of them die in the nest. So this year we're seeing, we're seeing nests with just one chicken and that means that two other chicks have just not had enough food and they've died in the nest and the females just lifted them out. And we, you know, also we see quite a variety in the stage of the chicks. So some are really big and well fed and other ones are just really starving. So on many occasions when we take a chick from a nest, the remaining chick suddenly gets all the food and very rapidly um, its condition improves and it, it will be successful instead of dying. This is year three of a five-year project with the conservation charity Birds of Pool Harbour. Male ospreys in particular, if they survive, will return from Africa to the place from which they migrated. So moving them before they can fly will help spread the population. What's really interesting is that different species have evolved in different ways over millennia. And a bird like a peregrine falcon can re-establish territory very rapidly. It's a, well, peregrinus, the wanderer. So, so they can re-establish the osprey and the white-tailed eagle and several birds like that. They always want to start breeding near other ones. And so the rate of spread after a bird has been exterminated by man is as little as five kilometers per year. And once a population is established, like here in Murray, it reaches a peak and then drops off. And then young birds can wait three, four, five, six years before they breed because there's no room for them. And so what we're doing is taking some of those young ones and moving them to an area where they have no competition from adults and can breed at two and three years old and establish a population quickly. First, though, they have to be sent 600 miles by road. OK, the young ospreys are going off to pool overnight tonight, and so Tim and I are getting these boxes ready. So each bird has a box. We put a bit some plastic in the bottom to uh, keep the bottom dry uh, so it doesn't fall to bits. And uh, we've torn up newspaper in there to, to as a soft bed, and then we've got some moss. 
there'll be one bird in each. We'll mark each box with the number of the bird and the pen that it should go in so that the siblings are kept together. And then they go into the van. They'll be in darkness in the van. And Ian and Tim will drive to Stoke, stop there to give the birds a feed and a rest. They will also get a rest and something to eat. And then at three o'clock in the morning, the next stage to pool. This is the third time with Ospreys to pool. So we do know what to expect and the birds do travel really well. And the key thing is because they're in the back of the van, it's dark. We're traveling at a time when the roads are clear, which means that hopefully we won't get stuck in traffic on the M6. And that really minimizes the time that we're, we're actually transporting the birds. But the opportunity to stop and give them a feed is really important as well, because we can check they're all okay, um, get a bit of food into them and then get to Paul as quick as possible. And it's 22 years ago that we took the first ones down to Rutland Water. And then I heard this year, there's 10 breeding pairs there. There's half a dozen breeding pairs in Wales, all due to that initial translocation. And the same is true in other parts of Europe now. And initially, of course, the big projects that restored the osprey in North America in the same sort of way after the real problems of pesticides. So I guess it's all to do with common sense which you learn <laughs> um, working in wildlife, or some people do. And that's when I'm you know, really pleased that the young people working with me now have picked up a lot of that stuff. And so we can do these, these projects, I think, in a really professional way. We found that uh, one of the best ways of feeding them, because the, the little pens are like a nest and it's full of hay and moss and so that the food doesn't have too much of that in it um, we use these little off-cut boards of, of timber as little plates and then we put enough food on each one and place them in different places in the pen so that each chick can feed itself. I noticed yesterday as soon as we put these boards in, put the blinds down, and five minutes later peered through the little people, they were already feeding. I think people, including me, actually will wonder how you learnt to do all this. I think an awful lot of it is actually going back to my childhood. Because when I was a kid, um, you know, in the late 1940s and 50s, it was quite normal for country children to kind of have pets or what we preferred to say that we rescued some lost <laughs> little creature. Which weren't lost at all. And which may have not been lost. Uh, but I remember having jackdaws and a tawny owl and uh, squirrels and rabbits. And um, one time I had three shell ducklings which used to come round following me on my bicycle like a little squadron of planes and it was great fun um, but also it taught us all about looking after wildlife and knowing the symptoms of how healthy they were one of the most important thing with these birds always is to look at their eyes and what you're looking for is that they have nice bright eyes and then you know they're well 
And then it was a matter of thinking, well, how do the parents feed them? How much do the parents feed them per day? And then always trying to replicate what happens in the wild. And you're back to cutting fish. But it must be very satisfying, actually, to see that all this labour has a direct result. And you see it pretty quickly. Yeah, you see that quite quick. Because within, within a month, they're flying. And within two and a half months, they're heading off to Africa. And I remember once going to a nest, and there were two big ones. And an absolute rump, which was about a quarter of the size, and just on the point of dying, because the male bird was not catching enough fish. And I took it home, this is probably in the 80s, and it sat in a little kind of box above the kitchen sink at my house, and we fed it, and after about 10 days it really increased its weight, and I knew a nest where the chicks were just about the same size, and I went and put that bird in that nest, and uh, the parent just carried on feeding three chicks instead of two um, with no bother at all and that little chick flew. Every element of this is there's responsibility because we're taking them from a nest, we're then transporting them and we're acting as their parents and so it's really important that we take the utmost care at every stage. You know each year you, you make small refinements, nothing kind of groundbreaking, but just small refinements that make it better for the birds. And, and that's the key thing. You know, we understand the process really well. And that means that for the birds, they have a, a really, hopefully, a really seamless journey. And this one is 24. 24? Yeah, that's really good. 11 birds. They're all in good condition. They're all big. Um, I think they will do well. And the last one is 25. We've managed to collect seven males and four females, and that's intentional, um, because what we know from all the research on ospreys is that males are really site faithful, so they're the ones who come back to their natal site and normally build a nest. So what we're doing is we're biasing the translocation of, of birds to pool in favour of males because they're more likely to go back to pool. The females could end up anywhere. They could end up in France or maybe Wales or perhaps even at Rutland Water. Some may go back to Pool Harbour but it's not as sure as the males. So we've got that bias in favour of males because they're the ones who hopefully will go back and breed in years to come. We're going to get the birds to pool as quickly as possible. When they get there, we've got some fantastic specially designed cages which give the birds a view of the release area. And it's that period when they're first in the cages and when they're first flying that they're learning where they're from. So they're going to forget about the fact that they're from Scotland originally and actually they're going to become Dorset Ospreys. Okay, cheers, cheers Roy. Good journey, keep yeah. in touch. Yeah, will do. In some ways, I had that little feeling that I wish I was going with them south. But now I have some colleagues who are really good at it. And I know that they're safe with them on the journey to Dorset. If you looked at young male ospreys leaving here naturally in Murray and going to Africa, the return after two migrations and the winter in Africa might be about uh, a third or a quarter of them will return. When they return here they want to breed in this area um, but it's really difficult they've got to fight their way in 
and in fact one or two of the males in my study area have been killed in these fights between males and some males may not breed until finally they're six or seven years old and every year they fail to breed there's a 10% chance of dying in the migrations whereas a male chick going to pool or previously to Rutland the return rate might be about a quarter but as soon as that bird comes back and finds a female he can breed even at we've had a male breed at two years old at Rutland and others breed at three years so the production the biological production you know you can make it faster if you move birds well, it's 2.46 and we're, we're back on the road, back on the M6 heading south. We had a bit of sleep, um, gave the birds a, a rest from the travelling, checked them all over, gave them a bit of a breather and now we're heading south again. How are you feeling Ian? I feel surprisingly good Tim, good to go. The road is absolutely empty, there's not a single car I can see. So we're, we're going to do good but I think we'll make good time here. We'll just hit the road, keep going and we should be there around about 6 o'clock in the morning. Well, it's 6.22 on a really beautiful, clear morning in Dorset and we've arrived at the release site, which is really great. Um, and it's a fantastic morning. There's mist hanging over the valley in front of us and we're, we're at the pens. We're just making the final preparations before, before the birds go in. Um, but everything, the, the guys down here have done a fantastic job and got everything ready to a really high standard. Like you say, it's a fantastic morning. It's quite cool. It's good weather. The birds are not going to be hot. They're not going to be stressed. And this really is a, an exciting moment because they're going to get into what is their new home for the next wee while. This is a really good moment and it's really exciting. I really, really can't wait to get these birds out and just let them explore their new surroundings. Fantastic. We can see the perches that have been built. There's artificial nests, things around and about for them to perch on. There's plenty of dead trees, snags, loads of mature trees around. It's a brilliant site. These birds are going to love exploring their new home. Well, we're standing at the back of the pens. We're just about to put the birds into their homes for the next couple of weeks. And I'm with Jason, who's built the pens to a very, very high standard. Obviously, you've had to work hard over the last few weeks, Jason. Can you just talk us through the, the pens themselves? Right, so we've got two pairs of pens, and they're elevated about eight feet off the ground. There's plenty of mesh and lots of aeration. It's a fantastic site here. We've got, we're looking out into the meadows there, and we've got the feeding nests in front of the pens and a few quite tall perching posts so um, yeah I'm really looking forward to birds being here and being released. Well you're going to keep these birds in captivity for two or three weeks and you want to give them the maximum opportunity of feeding properly, relating to each other properly and of course recognizing where they are because they spend a lot of time standing on the perches at the front of the cage looking at their surroundings and that's them learning where they are in the world it's what we call hefty so they know that when they go to Africa and come back they will come back to where they've been released not back to their nest in Scotland so I'm Brittany Maxted I'm the Osprey project officer for the Pool Harbour Osprey translocation project um, so I manage the Osprey project specifically um, and oversee the raise and release of the uh, young Ospreys. The birds arrived today they're doing really really well um, five of them are already flying and using the perches that we provided for them in the pens they've all fed really well they already seem like they're at home here um, and yeah we're looking forward to the next few weeks. 
So I'm in Paul Harbour Osprey Project HQ. I think it's fair to say it's HQ. And we're watching the live images from the pens. And it's brilliant to see how well the birds have settled in. They all look really strong and alert. They've all fed well. Um, I'm with Lucy and Liv, who are going to be monitoring the birds over the next few weeks. And it's their first, obviously, their first day with the Ospreys. How do you feel? Really excited, very pleased that this is our job. Um, I think we had a bit of a tear earlier when we fed, fed the birds. Just super excited, yeah. The people in pool will be keeping a very close eye on what they're doing. And nowadays, the quality of the CCTV means that they can monitor each bird continuously and that data is recorded so if they see something strange they could go back and see what happens and what they're looking for is that the birds feed well they look well they behave well to their neighbors and then you see the behavior that they're ready to go they're taking a great interest in the surroundings they're watching buzzards fly by and uh, they're ready to be released and Lucy, what are you doing there? You're kind of making some notes. What are you looking for particularly? Uh, so I'm looking at the osprey behaviours. So we're checking that they're all right, nice and lively. Um, and also looking out for important markers of um, behaviours which will tell us uh, that they're getting ready to fletch in the future. Just like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I still find each of these projects, you know, really exciting. Um, this one is going off for the third year to Pool Harbour but then there were the earlier ones where our birds were heading to Seville or to Bilbao and each one is different but each one you're trying to recreate the ancient osprey distribution. I recognise that it's a privilege that we work with these rare birds and that we must do the very best for them. I look forward to kind of the excitement and the satisfaction that we've done a good job. Well, that's it. We've put the birds in their pens and they're settling in well. I'm with Paul, who runs the project down here from Birds of Paul Harbour Charity. Paul, how are you feeling? Really excited. Um, it's been a lot of hard work this last few months I mean we've changed everything this year we've changed our procedures we've changed our location we've changed um, absolutely everything to make it a much bigger better project this year I was just looking at across the the landscape now and I think these birds are gonna have a whale of a time and a huge thanks to Roy Dennis and your team um, so yeah it's really nice to see a really strong set of birds um, we're full of confidence for this year and I cannot wait to see the release in a few weeks time all 11 of them are feisty as hell <laughs> And next time, we'll see the Ospreys take to the wing in Dorset. And we've just been watching one of the juveniles that was released do a fantastic flight above our heads. At the moment, it's just a tiny dot in the blue sky. And find out what happens to them next. We'll also soon be looking at Roy's work with other species, including the translocation of white-tailed eagles to the Isle of Wight. None of Roy's projects would be possible without the support of individuals. So if you're enjoying this podcast and want to help more work like this take place, please go to the Support Us page of the Foundation's website, www.roydennis.org. And the music, Realness by Kai Engel, is downloadable from the Free Music Archive.